morning. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot give up and give you any I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet, but because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who receives, and the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it'll be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is the Gospel of Christ. Pray with me. Father, we simply pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Be seated. Flannery O'Connor is a great southern writer from the 20th century. Uh, She was a Christian and very funny and very profound and excelled at writing. She loved to write short stories, and one of her short stories that's a favorite of mine is entitled The Turkey. In The Turkey, she details the account of an 11-year-old boy named Ruler. And Ruler, like, my, like most 11-year-old boys and 43-year-old boys for that matter, is insecure uh, and is seeking to make a name for himself in the world. And he kind of struggles with what it's like to be human. And he struggles with what it's like to be 11. And he struggles to find his way. And so he's internally, presumably, always looking for an opportunity to make a mark. Well, a mark was presented to him in order for him to make one day when he saw a wounded turkey in the woods. And he decided, you know what? I'm going to chase down that turkey and I'm going to get it. And, uh, and I'm going to kill it, and I'm going to go show everybody. And then he starts to recount in his mind what kind of homecoming he will have when he has this turkey slung over his shoulder and what it's going to be like walking through town, uh, you know, with this turkey on his shoulder and what it's going to be like when he comes in his home. And this is going to mark his identity. Ruler at this point is going to go from obscurity to popularity. Right, And so he runs after that turkey, but as he starts to do it, he reasons to himself, and this is operative, you know, in, in O'Connor, what she's trying to communicate and what we want to see this morning. Ruler reasons to himself, you know what I bet? I bet God's going to make me chase that darn turkey for nothing. But anyway, he chases it. He runs it down, and he gets it. And he's so proud, he's so happy. He's talking about how heavy the turkey is. must have weighed 10 pounds. He says, and he's coming back into town with the turkey, you know, slung over his shoulder. And at this point, because God has provided this turkey, 
even despite ruler's assumption that God might just be messing with him, uh, he decides that he's got to do something good for God, right? Like, I got to do something good. God gave me the turkey. Now I got to do something good for him. This is how this relationship works, right? And so he literally starts to pray that God would reveal to him some good deed he could do. Maybe even a beggar. Well, lo and behold, ruler runs into a beggar. And ruler gives this beggar money. And this arrangement's working fantastic. God provided a turkey. Ruler gives back to God by giving money to a beggar. And now ruler's on his way to make a name for himself. But before he gets home, he runs into some other boys. And they start asking him about the turkey. And you can imagine how proud he is in talking about the turkey. And then one of the boys says, let me see that turkey. And ruler hands the boy the turkey, and guess what? He runs off with the turkey. Now, ruler's whole game is shattered. And Flannery O'Connor writes this about ruler coming home after that. He turned toward home, almost creeping. He walked four blocks, and then suddenly... Noticing that it was dark, he began to run. He ran faster and faster. As he turned up the road to his house, his heart was running as fast as his legs. And he was certain that something awful was tearing behind him. With its arms rigid and its fingers ready to clutch. Brennan Manning in his book, Abba's Child, says this about that story. In Ruler... Many of us as Christians stand revealed, naked, exposed. Our God, it seems, is one who benevolently gives turkeys and then on a whim takes them away. When he gives them, it signals his interest in and pleasure with us. We feel close to God and we're spurred to generosity. When he takes them away, it signals his displeasure and rejection. We feel cast off by God. He is fickle unpredictable, whimsical. He builds us up only to let us down. He remembers our past sins and retaliates by snatching the turkeys of health, wealth, inner peace, empire, success, and joy. When I was in elementary school, we used to play this game, and this will date me a little bit. Um, I gather that some of you could maybe relate with this. Um, but we would go out for recess, and we would get flowers, and we would find the petals, and we would pick the petals. And you know what you did in elementary school uh, when boys and girls were starting to become relevant to each other? She loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. You know this game? She loves me not. She loves me. And then whatever's left is what is true. I wonder how indicative that is of our relationship with God so often. Much like ruler's experience in O'Connor's story, much like our own lives, we feel as if we live before a God whose pleasure and love and embrace of us is based on what we do or what we don't do. He loves me. He loves me not. And as a result of having that mentality in life about God, which is a massive misunderstanding, we live with our hearts running as fast as our legs, feeling like something awful is chasing us. Now, that's not the most encouraging thing 
to contemplate this morning, but it seems so accurate. How often do you feel like your life is characterized as if something awful is chasing you and you've got to run fast to get away from it? Well, Luke 11 is a fantastic story in the parable because it encourages us to have a different view of God. It encourages us to have a more charitable, benevolent, loving view of God. In fact, the main thing I want us to see this morning from Luke 11 is simple. God is a kind, loving Father. Luke 11, 5 through 13, primarily, I believe, is seeking to communicate to us that God is a kind and a loving Father. And that we are called to live in freedom as His children underneath His fatherly care. Do you see yourself for who you are in this world? Ultimately, a child of God, the beloved, right? Henry Nouwen says that's our core identity. In fact, he goes on to say it's really our only permanent identity throughout all of eternity. We carry so many different identities right now in life. If I gave you five minutes, I bet you could write over 20 different identities and roles that you carry in life. And guess how many of those will carry with you into eternity? Only one. The beloved child of God. J.I. Packer says this in his classic work, Knowing God. You sum up the whole New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. Listen to this. If you want to judge how well you understand Christianity, and this is great for Christians and non-Christians here this morning. If you want to judge how well you understand Christianity, find out how much you make of the thought of being God's child and having Him as your Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls your worship and your prayers and your whole outlook on life, it means that you don't understand Christianity very well at all. Frederick Beekner, a little bit more casually and poetically, as he usually does, goes on to say this in the same vein. We are children, perhaps, at the very moment when we know that it is as children that God loves us. Not because we have deserved His love and not in spite of our undeserving. Not because we try and not because we recognize the futility of our trying but simply because He has chosen to love us. We are children because He is our Father. And all our efforts, fruitful and fruitless, to do good, speak truth, to understand, are the efforts of children for all their worth are children still. That in before we loved Him, He loved us as children through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see that as your core identity? Do you rest in the reality that God is your loving, kind, and good Father. I understand that there are significant barriers to this assertion. Maybe they begin with our own earthly fathers, which is well-intentioned as they are, which almost all of you, no matter how healthy or unhealthy, no matter how solid or unstable your family was or your father was, almost all of you, I would imagine, grew up 
with a well-intentioned, trying-to-love-you father. Of course, there are evil people that exist in the world, and at times we might feel like people are evil, but ultimately, your father was trying to love you most likely and try to love you well the best he could. Not unlike you right now as a father, potentially, are trying to love your own children well. But we don't. And our fathers didn't. And so that creates this barrier for us to see God as a father. Also, when we look at brokenness in the world and we live in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be and we're not the way we're supposed to be, we think, how can God be loving and kind and good? But the scriptures repeatedly tell us, and we're going to address some of those issues even this morning, that God is loving and he is kind and he is a good father. And because that's true, I want us to consider three things from this passage. Because that is true, we can pray with freedom and confidence. Because that is true, we can pray persistently. And because that is true, we can trust that he will always give us good gifts. Because God is a kind and loving father, we can pray with freedom and confidence. One. Because God is a kind and loving father. Two, we can pray persistently. And then thirdly, because God is a kind and loving Father, we can trust that He will always do good unto us and for us. First of all, let's look at this idea of praying with freedom and confidence in our story, following, once again, this is important contextually, the Lord's Prayer. Jesus is teaching on prayer. And so then Jesus tells a story about prayer, but the story itself, of course, is not about prayer. But it is about prayer. And so Jesus discusses this scenario where a friend goes to another friend's house at midnight and is banging on his door, bang, 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 bang. His friend is in bed because it's midnight. And his friend's response to the banging on the door is, leave me alone. I'm asleep. I'm not getting up. But but, but you don't understand, I've got a house guest. And he starts to reason, which is not irrelevant in prayer, by the way. He starts to reason with him, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've got a guest in the house. I don't have anything to feed him. Can you please help me out? And then seemingly reluctantly, the friend's friend says, fine. Because you are shamelessly persistent. That's what that word means in the Greek. Because you are shamelessly persistent, I'll come and I'll open the door and I'll give you bread and I will oblige Why in the world would one friend be inclined to knock on another friend's door at midnight with freedom and with confidence and boldness? Why? It's simple. Because they're friends. This is what friends do, right? Just a few weeks ago, some of our good friends were out of the country. And they have kids, and they had someone taking care of their kids, and my family, as is our tradition on Friday night, had just settled in. Uh, we'd gotten our pizza. We got our movie going. We were a third to half of the way in the movie. You know, it's Friday. I'm, I'm very much in detox mode at this point. Lights out on the couch, eating pizza, watching a movie. And we start to get peppered with a few phone calls from our friend's babysitter. Like our friends who are out of the country's babysitter. And we think, oh no. Something must be wrong. And so we call her back 
And sure enough, they were broken down on the side of the road with a flat tire. And at that point, of course, what I do is reason it's Friday night. I've just eaten pizza. All the lights are out. We're in the middle of a movie. I'm not going to change a tire. Call AAA, right? No, immediately. All right, kids, let's go. And my whole family jumps in the car. We go and we meet them. And I changed that tire very quickly, by the way, um, in a very manly manner. Um, even though there were some challenges to it, I circumvented all of them. Um, because I love my friends, right? And I wanted to help them. And so my friends, even by proxy, could reach out to me with freedom and confidence, knowing essentially they could ask anything. Knowing that I would oblige, even if I didn't really want to. Even if I'd rather just stay on my couch, watch the movie, and finish eating the pizza. Right? Paul talks about this in Ephesians when he says in prayer, we have uh, the ability in Christ to, to access the throne of God with boldness and confidence through faith in Him. Do you know that? Or do you feel like that you have to approach God apologetically? Do you approach God with freedom and with boldness and with confidence in prayer because you approach Him in Christ? Now, this might sound silly or even simple, overly simple to you, but when we think about what it's like to approach God, we can be reluctant. I don't know. I really kind of, I don't know how I feel about this. He feels distant. I, I feel, you know, dirty. I feel guilty. I feel shame. I don't know if I can approach him. I have a lot of barriers to approaching God with freedom and confidence and boldness. I don't know. He loves me. He loves me not. But let me ask you this. What's your mentality and vision of Christ, the Son, approaching God the Father? Like, would you have any problem envisioning a very free, bold, and confident pathway and access for Jesus to approach His Father? Probably not. Well, guess what? That's you. When we approach God the Father, we approach Him clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So much so that, is it, that it is as if we are Christ coming to our Father. What are the implications of this? Practically, before we move on, for one, it's just simply resting in this friendship. It's resting in this relationship. If we don't see God as a relational God, we don't understand who God is. God's aspect and the reality that He is relational is seen essentially on every page throughout all of Scripture. It's fundamental to who God is. God is relational. God, through Christ, is our friend. Not only that, do we have to realize that relationship? We also can realize the freedom and the confidence through which we can pray. Our prayers simply stated, this is true for me too, are too weak. Our prayers oftentimes are not characterized by boldness or confidence or freedom. I had a mentor one time 
challenge our group with regard to prayer. And he simply said, do your prayers threaten the enemy? It's not that God doesn't care about trivial things. He does. God cares that our kids would have a good day at school tomorrow. But the enemy probably doesn't really care whether our kids have a good day at school tomorrow or not. It's not a real concern to his. It's a concern to ours, and that's fine. But what if we prayed big prayers, like bold prayers? What if we prayed for, mm, I don't know, conversion to happen at our kids' school tomorrow? Like, what if we prayed that justice and mercy would be manifest tomorrow through broken people? I don't know, what if we prayed prayers like, Lord, we would love in the city of Knoxville for no one to sleep on the streets. What if we prayed prayers like, oh God, make me a father like you are. Those prayers, I think, would be pretty threatening to the enemy, but those prayers would be precipitated on the fact that we can pray with freedom and confidence and boldness. And what this text tells us is we can. We can do that because God is a kind and a loving father. But also, God is a kind and loving father, so we can pray persistently without being fearful that we're going to nag him. In fact, I would go as far to say that God loves it when we persistently pray. God loves it when we persistently approach Him. Why? Because it's building our relationship, right? Because at the end of the day, what is prayer? It's simply talking to God. It's focusing on and responding to Him. The Puritans used to say, we are to pray as we think. We are to pray as we think. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, we are to pray without ceasing. Why? Is it to earn God's favor? He loves me, he loves me not? Is it to outrun that something awful that is chasing us? Is it to, like some traditions historically have been confused about, pay penance? To pray specific prayers? To pray specific, traditional, historical prayers, which in and of themselves are not wrong or bad. But if these prayers are prescribed by an authority that is not God, to be prayed by humans in order to be accepted by God, we're missing something. I don't care how many Hail Marys you pray. It's not what earns your acceptance or merits God's favor on your behalf. That's not why we pray persistently. We pray persistently because God welcomes us to do it. We pray persistently, as C.S. Lewis said, because prayer, ultimately at the end of the day, does not change God, but it changes us. That's why we pray persistently. Did you ever think about prayer being formational? Like, we pray about God forming things in us at times when we don't get caught up in the two trivial moments of life. And please don't hear what I'm saying with that. Like, you pray about whatever you want. I am encouraging you to pray about more and to pray about deeper things and to pray about bolder things. Maybe don't stop praying for anything you're praying about, but pray for more. But when we do that, we pray for things like, God, make me more kind. 
God, make me more gracious. Make me more understanding. Make me more truthful. Make me more bold. God, make my kids grow up in a world where the lines of God-ordained sexuality are not blurred. That's a, power, that's a pretty powerful prayer, actually. That'd be a good one. That counts as bold. But when we pray those things, we are asking God to bring about a change in circumstances. But you understand that partially change happens through the means, not just the end. Right? Like, when we pray to be kind, guess what? That prayer to be kind is making you more kind. When you pray to be pure, it's not just about God granting and you achieving purity. Praying to be pure makes you more pure. Like prayer in and of itself is formational. It's not just about the end of the ways that our prayers are answered. Walter Wengren, who's a fantastic writer, says this in his book, Whole Prayer. God's yearning to be heard, God is yearning to be heard as well as to hear. Think about that. God is yearning to be heard, but equally God is yearning to hear. That's a different view, right? To lead, to explain, to console to solve and to resolve not only our problems, but our very selves. See, we pray about problems, which God does care about. But God cares about more than simply our problems. He cares about ourselves. To satisfy not only the petty hungers we can name, but the deeper hungers only a holy father can identify. God speaks to us in prayer. So how can we pray persistently on a practical level as we know that prayer is formational? I don't know. It begins with praying. Right? And how do we pray? Mm, I don't know. It probably begins with stillness. And how do we catch stillness? I don't know. That probably begins with being intentional and carving out a time, even if it's a little bit of time, and a place, even if it's a non-distinct place to be still and to listen and to speak. And for those of you who are married, a good question would be, how can I help you? How can I serve you by allowing you to experience stillness in the busyness of our lives? And of course, we have to take personal responsibility for this. We're scared of it, but that's how praying persistently happens. It's creating time and space for the prayers. Because you see, praying persistently is a continual reminder that we're dependent. And I actually think that's one of the reasons we don't like to pray. Because we don't like to be dependent. In our culture, in this day and time, there's hardly anything you can't say. Except... I can't. Can't do it. We live in such a self-sufficient culture, no wonder our faith in Christianity is a mile wide and an inch deep. Because Christianity is actually based on dependence and faith. 
And that's what Christ's life was based on. Paul Miller in his book, The Praying Life, which I would highly recommend to you, by the way. Paul Miller, The Praying Life, says this about Jesus. Jesus is, without question, the most dependent human being who has ever lived. You don't really think about Jesus like that a lot, do you? Because he can't do life on his own. He prays, and he prays, and he prays. Luke tells us that Jesus would regularly withdraw to desolate places and pray. And I'd simply say this. If Jesus needed to do that, how much more do we? Speaking of how much more, we've to our last point and really my favorite point in this passage, an often overlooked point by many. I didn't discover it. Plenty of other people have discovered this last thing. But because God is a kind and loving Father, we can pray with freedom and boldness. Because God is a kind and loving Father, we can pray persistently. And because God is a kind and loving Father, we can believe and assume and trust that He gives good gifts. And that's where we see this in verses 11 through 13. If you want to look to the text again, this way He says, You as an earthly father who are evil. And now, some of you might have an aversion to that. When I read that, I'm like, it's just liberating. I know it sounds a little dramatic, but I'm like, yep, that's pretty much who I am. Um, like at the end of the day, if being a good parent is precipitated on the fact of me being like really good, then I'm a terrible parent. Um, but if I can embrace with honesty and repentance that, you know what? I mean, honestly, I can just kind of be evil. However, I still give my kids good things, Right? Like, he goes on to say, look, you who are evil, and this is related, by the way, to the parallel parable, kind of a tongue twister in Luke 18 with the parable of the persistent widow. The persistent widow, you know, keeps bugging the judge and the judge who neither feared God nor man. This judge was evil. However, he still obliged reluctantly and gave in to the widow's request, right? And here in the text saying, look, your father's like, you're, you're broken, you're messed up, but like... You're not so broken and you're not so messed up that if your kid asked for a fish, you'd be mean and give him a snake. If your kid asked for an egg, you'd give him a scorpion. That'd be an, I don't quite know what's going on there culturally, but you get the point. And then verse 13, and this is what's so beautiful. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, hear this, how much more Will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? That's the primary point of this parable, I would argue. There is clearly points to be made that we just made. It is about prayer. And it is about praying with freedom and confidence. And it is about praying persistently. But even more than praying with freedom and confidence. And even more than praying persistently. This passage, this text is for us to sit and to receive And to rest in this reality. God is a kind and a loving Father. Who is committed to and yearns and longs to give you good gifts. Even you who are broken and sinful give good gifts. Well how much more is our Father who is not broken. Who is not sinful. How much more does he give good gifts? Do you believe that about him? Of course, this, and this is a whole other 
sermon. Of course, we have to recalibrate our understanding of what good is. Good for us is essentially synonymous with feels good. That's what good is. And this is where we view God anthropomorphically, right? We view God from the eyes of our human existence, and we view God as if He's a man too. And so then our definition of good is very narrow. Blaise Pascal said this, God has created us in His image, and we've returned the favor. But that's not how the Scripture portrays God. God's not like the way that ruler in Flannery O'Connor's story saw God. God is kind, and He is loving, and He is gracious. Just look at yourself. You're not the way you're supposed to be, but you still give good gifts. How much more is your heavenly Father give us good things? I'll close with two scriptures. Jeremiah says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And then Isaiah 40, and we'll just close with this. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in? Who brings the princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, and why do you speak that your way is hidden from the Lord and that your cause is disregarded by him? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow tired or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Pray with me. Father, We do complain and we do say that you disregard us. Help us to see things differently. Help us to not create you in our image. Help us to see you for who you are, that you are kind, loving, generous, and gracious, Father. Help us to not commit the sin that John Owen said is the greatest unkindness we can do to you to not believe that you love us. Help us to believe that you love us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.